This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community and communities create social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face. Our next interview is with a guy that I think you've probably heard of before. He sold a few books along the way. I think we're talking about around 20, 25 million books. His name's Paul Young. He's written a book called The Shack, another book called Crossroads. Uh, today we're going to talk to him about his new book called Eve, which has uh, kind of going to take, I think, uh, things uh, with respect to the whole conversation around gender and around relationships and around just our own understanding of our humanity. And, and gonna, he's going to turn them upside down. Paul's a great guy. He's fun. He's funny. He's going to be up here, I think, on a press tour coming up soon. Check out the book for sure. Uh, more more information on my site, davidpecklive.com. Paul's going to talk about re- relationship is where real change happens. So uh, buckle up um, and, and listen in as Paul talks about authenticity of story. And he talks about uh, um, how every move toward God has to go through some form of atheism of one kind or another. So listen in and uh, we'll We'll, we'll speak with you shortly. Well, welcome to Face to Face, and we have a returning guest to the show. Uh, he's an author, he's a speaker, he's just an all-around good guy. Uh, Paul Young is joining us today. Uh, Paul, thanks for thanks for uh, being a guest today on Face to Face. Uh, David, it's always a uh, it's always a great pleasure and honor to especially be with you. You're such a good friend, so that's great. Thank you. Thanks for that, Paul. So you got a new book. Um, you, so I guess what you're just, you're not happy with having sold 23 million books. 
<laughs> you know, I never intended to do that in the first place. So it's not like I'm trying to uh, trying to add more fuel to the to the fire. It's you know, I've always been a writer, but the surprise was that anybody besides my friends and family cared. And, right. Uh, um, so I'm just continuing to do what I was doing anyway, and it, so I got it. Yeah, I've got a new book. This one was a very long pregnancy, though. Let me tell you, it's been go- it's been it's been fermenting for a long time. Yeah, forty years. Four. That's a long pregnancy. Wow. And, uh, uh. Yeah. So the 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 labor was very excruciating, but I'm very pleased with. Uh, uh, the baby is healthy. <laughs> so, so I want to get to that in a second, and I'm just going to tell the the, the listenership that that I've read the book. I read, I've, or at least I've read a version of it. Uh, Paul was kind enough to send it to me. Uh, it's great. I loved it, Paul. Um, I got a lot of things I can ask you about, and and but but what was really interesting to me was what I would say this um, because I'm such a huge fan of, of of Blade Runner and and kind of that science fictiony dystopic like kind of edge uh, it had that it had a whole matrix thing going on or hunger games or so i could i was seeing the images you know of the film as i was reading the book which doesn't usually happen so i think that's probably uh partially the writing but also just um um uh the story the storyline it just had this i don't know the, the washing up on the shore and <laughs> so let's get that yeah. in a second but because i've you know brought up some film references nice little segue into the shack is now finally or maybe uh, shooting's wrapped but it's 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 coming it to the theaters wrapped. right it is and it'll be in 2016 um don't know exactly the release dates yet uh if i were to guess i would guess either late August or Thanksgiving of next year. And, okay. um, um, but that would be just a guess at this point because they haven't made anything public. And um, which to me is really wonderful. Both those dates uh, uh, are exceptional because that means that they're looking at the film as a, a major competitor in, in the market, generally speaking. So uh, rather than a niche film or a faith film or those kinds of things, which I... I ne- <laughs> I never wanted the book to be a Christian book, so right. I'm, I'm I'm kind of pleased about that. But yes, they're they're done. The, um, they've wrapped the shooting. Um, doesn't mean that there isn't you know bits and pieces to reshoot, but as there always is, uh, from what I understand, you know, because this is my first experience being inside a, a film process. Right. Um, and they shot most of it up in BC. Um, probably ninety five percent of it. Oh, that's yeah. kind of cool. And we're we're talking yeah. about some significant names here, right? I mean, we don't want to get into yeah. a whole name dropping thing, but we're not. I mean, you got a few a uh, few big names alongside. Yeah, you know, you've got Octavia Spencer, um, and uh, you know, if they release it in that time frame, they're looking for uh, potential Oscar nominations inside that that uh, right. Right, which so, seems to be kind of a thing that Hollywood's gotten into in the last ten or fifteen years. They release certain films closer to that that date, right? Yep. Yeah. Sam Worthington um, and his uh, connection to Avatar, of course, and then um, uh, Rada Mitchell and Octavia Spencer. Uh, Oscar, she won the Oscar for Help, didn't she? She did. Yeah, that's what I thought. I wasn't sure if she'd won the Oscar, but I I knew she was, of course, in it. And uh, 
Wow, it's amazing, Paul. I mean, unbelievable from, you know, if people want to hear your story who haven't heard it for the first time, I certainly did a podcast uh, with Paul on, hey, by the way, I'm going to face-to-face check it out. We did one uh, um, about a year ago, I guess now, and we certainly Mm -hmm. talked a lot about the the, the genesis Mm -hmm. of the shack. It's out there online as well. But from what it was, it 11 or 12 books that you published to to, to Octavius? Uh, 15. Give me a break. It was 15. 15 books, right? (laughs) I made that Office Depot. You know? Your first run, Sherlock's Bound. Yeah. Like, it's unbelievable, Paul. I mean, just that in itself is just a crazy, crazy story. Um, it is a wonderful story. It's a truly, truly wonderful story. So so let's talk about your new novel, your Blade Runner-like novel called Eve. Um, and, when, and when, yeah, I really like that. Uh, David, I've, I've always loved science fiction. Okay. And I've always loved um, the edge of fantasy. I grew up reading... The classics, but amongst the classics was littered Edgar Rice Burroughs, and, right? And uh, you know some of some of those. Uh, Did you ever read a story in school, Paul, called "The Most Dangerous Game"? Does that ring a bell? No. So it. They, oh, tell me about it. Well, they turned it into a movie years later with Val Kilmer and a few others, I think. But essentially, creepy story, and and it might have been Ray Bradbury or Burroughs or somebody like that. And essentially, it was a guy who let people go, who capture who 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 kidnap people let them go on his island, and then he, he, he went after them. Oh, I saw the movie. Yeah, so they did turn it into a movie, but it was originally called it was a short story called The Most Dangerous Game, and I could punch it up right now in the interview here, but we don't, we don't have time for that. But, it, but I just remember it was one of those that, you know, there was another one by Ray Bradbury for me called The Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl. And it's about a guy who, who, who ends up uh, robbing somebody's house and ends up killing somebody and, real, and, and uh. realizes that he's touched all these things. And so he starts to clean off his fingerprints, and it's the psychosis of this criminal coming to the surface in this really short story. Yeah. And he starts wiping everything down in the house, and then even uh, the even the fruit on the bottom of the bowl he's wiping down. And the last scene is sort of him closing the door, and that's the story. But but there's a real power to that kind of stuff. It, that's it's there. There is. There's a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe in there. And yeah, yeah, no doubt, no so doubt. I, I grew up with Arthur C. Clarke and nice and Isaac Asimov. And, cool. But I love science fiction because it just um, it gets rid of some of the boundaries. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, storytelling. Yeah. So uh, and that was the challenge because the book is called Eve, and and I am, you know, when I write, I write with regard to questions. Um, the Shack was written around the question about the character and nature of God, uh, the goodness of God, um, the, uh, the issue of suffering. Uh, how, do you, how do you juxtapose the character of God being good with the terrible kinds of suffering and losses that we all face right. in this world? And, um, and then Crossroads is about, you know, how does change get inside the world of someone who has shut down them uh, their own world uh, against relationship, and I think relationship is the crucible in which real change happens. Mm. It's what um, challenges our paradigms and, and and moves us from our systems of self protection and security. So, and then Eve, the question was, you know, uh, one that emerged and uh, that is actually part of the other two. Um, when I was a teenager, because I I began to have to deal with my stuff, as they say, and. Yep. And a lot of my losses were around um, damage that was done in my life by men. But I was inside an evangelical Christian community where, you know, there was an, an obvious and overt 
um, and and well maintained hierarchy in terms of power and structure mm-hmm. and and role segregation and um, and so as I looked around the world, not only was the damage in my life primarily by men, so was the damage in the world. Mm. And uh, and and it was easy to begin to see like what what have we done as men in this world, and why? Right. Why, where did everything go sideways? Right. And, right. And, and it was the issue of hierarchy that actually drove me to um, deeper conversations and reflection about um, the nature of God as. Trinity as three persons in a face-to-face dance of relationship, and and I come to find out that you know every tradition in Christianity has has declared overtly that the idea of hierarchy within the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is heresy, and um, so that's what drove me into the conversation about gender, which which ultimately took me back to Genesis. Because everybody in the hmm. New Testament refers back to the Hebrew scriptures of Genesis and the and the storyline there. So then the challenge becomes: How do you write about this? Yep. Especially if you're dealing with a different narrative for this fundamentally iconic story. And um, and I'm thinking, you know, the paradigm we've adapted for it, it's faulty to the core. And so it's not that the the text is fault, faulty. It's not that uh, the, you know, the Hebrew is wrong. It's not that they were wrong in terms of how they wrote it. We overlaid a paradigm mm. on top of Genesis mm-hmm. so strong that we can't even read the English text, let alone the Hebrew text. Paul, Paul, do you do you care if do do you care if the stories actually actually happened in the way that it's um, written about in in the 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 Bible, the Hebrew text? Uh, I do. Um, I, I care about the story and the, and the way that it's written. And I think um, that's what Midrash is. That is what uh, Hebrew scholarship has done throughout the ages. Uh, the Hebrew language has huge limitations in the sense that it's, it's very small. Um, the number of nouns is minuscule compared to English, for example, mm-hmm. and they don't have any vowels. Mm-hmm. And so they've got a run of consonants, and, and you have to put the vowels in there, right. which opens up space inside the words themselves, let alone the storyline. Um, so uh, I think that the way it's unfolded is very critical. And, um, and yeah, you can have a big conversation about you know the historicity of... Right. Uh, the creation of Adam and Eve and all of that, and that certainly and that certainly seems to be going on right now, right? With the uh, uh, Greg sure. Boy, Derek Flood, Peter Enns, uh, Brad Jersey. There's a few of these guys that are having some of these infallibility conversations right now. Yeah, and I think the the question about inerrancy and infallibility is a whole different question than the question about the authenticity of story. Ah, uh, nice. One is very, yeah, I think one is a very scientific question. And um, and a rational uh, Western Enlightenment question. Yep. And the other one is about art and beauty and wonder and truth. And, well, um, and, and and isn't it, Paul? I mean, and isn't this to me like I grew up in an environment? I don't know about you, but I grew up in an environment, and I mean, my family and sort of sort of the church environment, very conservative, where where fantasy fiction, certainly science fiction, was seen as an issue was seen as a problem. I mean, you—that's not true. It's fantasy. It's imagination. So it's dangerous. So, so, so even C.S. Lewis's stuff. I remember an uncle of mine 
questioning me on the value of it. And, and I've learned over time that, and I'm teaching my children now, that it's, it's that I don't care if the story is actually true, capital T. It's what it points to that means something. Isn't that what you mean? Well, it's, you care if the story is actually true, capital T. It's just that you're not so concerned whether it's actually real. Actually real, thank you. Like, like yeah, right. Did it actually happen in this way? Um, but, Correct. But, so, what it, but what it points to is what's so, what's so beautiful and profound and, and actually true. Yeah, and, and here's, the, here's part of the beauty of it. In the, in the realm of relationship, everything's fiction. And, uh, you know, you... You tell a story about what just happened. You're, you're creating a story. And, and there are elements of it that are, that are real and that somebody else inside that story would have also identified as, right. well, that happened. But the way that you tell it, the nuance you tell it, the, the uh, tone of voice that you tell it in, all of that is, is fiction. But it doesn't mean it's not true. Right. Um, parables are all true, capital T, but they're not real. Yeah, and in terms of that, you know, inerrancy and fallibility thing, which again, you you see the separation between the real and the true, and I think part of the beauty of story is that it gets to things that are true and invites you to hear for yourself, and I think that plummets the depth of of human, um, the wonder of humanity and the integrity that underlies the the beauty of participation in a cosmic dance that is far more profound than, you know, two-dimensional surface facts. In, in, Paul, in EVE, one of the things, and I don't know if this is, uh, if, if, if you're the first, first person to have done this, but certainly it's the first time I've recognized it in this way, and I've certainly been tracking with uh, your writing and speaking and with others that are doing some, Baxter Kruger and others and James Torrance and the people that are doing some of the same kind of work, but you refer to God, however you define that, uh, as they, you never say he, you never say she in the book. It's always in the, um, I was going to say in the plural, but I'm not even sure that's the right way to, to look at this. The meta plural maybe, but yeah. the way you refer to God is as is relational. I do. And, and even in that, I spun it a little bit. So when it's a refer- reference to Adonai, who is, uh, it is the, um, the name that was adapted so that the unpronounceable name of God, uh, uh, ha- you had a way to refer to that person of the Trinity. And I, and I believe the Hebrew Scriptures, right from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, begins to uh, explode the myth of a mono-God. That is, that mm-hmm. there's a monad-God, a singularity, um, but we have a God who is one, there is only one God, but there is a plurality of persons, um, and, and I think that's from Hebrews chapter 1. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, from the mm-hmm. Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis chapter 1. So, um, so Elohim, in, in the beginning, Elohim. Um, Elohim is a plural noun, and, but the verbs are singular. So this right. plural noun acts in singular ways, but the pronouns are then plural. And, and Genesis says, you know, let us, us make man, humankind, in our image. And so the plurality is there. So um, Adonai, which would be uh, Jehovah, would be the anglicized, unpronounceable name, Yahweh, or um, uh, is a, it would be a reference to the Messiah coming. 
um, the one who bridges, in a sense, not a separation gap, but bridges between creator and creation, um, that person of the Trinity. Then sometimes I refer to, to that character in he. Sometimes I refer to the Holy Spirit character, who is referenced in Genesis 1 as ruach, which is feminine. And so I'll, I'll slip in a she, but in terms of the oneness of God, I always use they. Do you think people? Do you think people are going to be a little? Uh, <laughs> are they going to have one more reason to be annoyed with you, Paul? Oh, sure. You know, if they want to be annoyed, they won't even read the book. I mean, that's what they did with the shacks, and, and those are my people, so I know them. And uh, you know, we come from a camp where it's about being right, yes, know, not about loving. And uh, so we're on the infallibility, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> inerrancy side of the cup. You know, it's about being right. You know, who cares whether it's true or not? And uh, um, the, uh, so, yeah, I mean, but the beauty of it is that we live in a time right now where uh, the barriers and, and, and being right are not so um, uh, concrete as they were 15 years ago, 20 years right. ago. You know, information has definitely slammed into the, into the wall of propositional truth. Nice, and, uh, nice. Allowed for a huge amount of questions to rise that we've had as human beings, but weren't allowed within a religious context to even ask. And uh, so things aren't as impermeable as they once were. And um, the fact that I use they will raise questions, but those questions, I think, will be far more embraced now than they would have 50 years ago. Yeah, without, without um, a doubt. Um, so timing part of it. Time, time, without a doubt, I think timing's incredibly important. The, so, the, so, I don't know if it was timing for me. Uh, sometimes you see a film and you go, wow, that was the greatest film I've ever seen, and you bring it up at a, a, a dinner conversation three days later, and you go, what are you, a moron? It was awful, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, but as I read the book, uh, I got deeper in. I tried, I tried to start it a couple times, and then I, I put it down and said, you know what? Nope, I'm not going to do that uh, to Paul or to the book or to the text or, you know, to the story. I want to read it all uh, in, a, in, a, in a, as short of a time as I can, and I did that. So I really got pulled in, and and... Honestly, and this isn't, I don't think, just because we're friends, I, I was, I mean, as I was explaining it to somebody after finishing, I started to well up with some tears. There was a lot of emotional, uh, emotional, um, there was a real emotional edge for me on this one. And, and I really resonated with the main character in the story. And I wonder, Paul, did, would you say, I mean, here's some... Uh, some phrases, folks, from, from the book, Lily of Last Questions, the almighty voice of furious love. These are, these are direct quotes. Um, you're lost to yourself, but you're not to me. A creator uh, and created lingered in the fellowship of other-centered love. Even a minor crisis can shatter the human soul. And I think that's the one I want to talk about for a second, Paul. But some, just some beautiful phrases out of the book. Was the book, was Eve... Did it come out of brokenness then? Is that kind of, you know, this phrase, even a minor crisis can shatter the human soul. It's just such a lovely phrase and, <laughs> and, and, and just draws me right in. Um, tell me a bit more about that and maybe the genesis of the book. I, yes, the answer is of course, yes. Um, but, uh, but I think the resonance is on many different levels. And I think part of it is that when you read this story, it connects to longing. Hmm. And, and that's a point of resonance that we don't 
we're not used to within the Western culture uh, uh, being attuned to or knowing how to identify. Mm-hmm. And, and there is something about this that connects with us and goes like, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't explain it, but this, this so gives me hope. Right. You know? And so it, it, it resonates at that level. But, yes, it, it, we live in a broken world. And, and my main character represents, in an incarnational way, that brokenness. And um, so it's my brokenness. And I think that's why we resonate. And it's kind of like, oh, if, if this brokenness does, is not so powerful to prevent love from embracing it, Maybe there's hope for us all. Um, and and would you say, Paul, that 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 I, I love I love your the angle on hope because I I mean it just resonates with all the work that I'm doing with uh, through so change and the consulting and the speaking and the writing and so on. It's all connect the whole idea of 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 little things making a big difference to me. I mean, if I wasn't some crazy idealist, I wouldn't be doing it. So hope is wonderful. Um, but um, do you think that? one of the main sort of messages of the book, and I know I hate doing this to people when it's so subtle and nuanced, but would be that, uh, you know, you close the book, it's kind of this, I don't know, new appreciation for uh, a God of love. Absolutely. Um, I think all of our best longings originate not in us, but in a God uh, in whom we were created. And, and, um, and that's part of, the, part of hope, Mm-hmm. Because if you know if if those longings connect me to the very character and nature of God, and I find those longings common to us, even though they're buried under all of our damage and hurt and our defensiveness and our isolation and our violence, um, then that points me to something that is deeper and more true. Uh, either either that, or we're caught in some kind of cosmic um, masochistic. Uh, narcissist-oriented uh, type of reality, and and that makes no sense to me as I am face to face with my children and especially with my grandchildren, um, you know, because I've lived now long enough to be face to face with grandchildren, and I recognize the movement in my own life toward authenticity, toward goodness, toward kindness, toward love, and I'm saying, okay, if I take that um, backwards. If we are truly made in the image of God, I should be able to take those things backwards and and get a fairly good picture of the nature and character of God. Do you think Paul, do, do, yeah, you, do you think do you think an atheist? Do you think somebody who's been so shut down by sort of the Western lens, by the you know the layer that you talked about earlier that we've we've put on uh, our understanding of of God of any kind, you know, no matter what religion you belong to, do you think that that person? Uh, could read a book like this? Could they get beyond the first few pages? Are they going to be, you know, it's kind of like that Philip Pullman sort of experience with the Golden Compass, you know, and, and his yeah. his idea of what the, the what, what forget, the authority. So his idea of the God that he represents in those books is, is in fact, a misrepresentation. And that's what you're kind of trying to say here. And, but, yeah, absolutely. But, but for those folks who are already closed down, how, how do you, how do you get to them? How do you get them to say, Hey, no, you know what? You gotta, you gotta try this. You gotta, you gotta see this from a different perspective. And now we're talking about an, uh, uh, um, a philosophical question, really, aren't we? Cause if you yes, can't get, be, it's not about yeah. the story at that point. 
I th- I think that um, the atheists are not near so closed down as the religious people. Mm. Uh, I think the paradigm of religion is way more potent and um, um, almost imperceptible, like you know, water is to a fish, right? Uh, and and powerfully um, impervious. Uh, and and atheists, at least, has a sense of what they don't believe. Yep. And um, and I'm I love that. I I find more resonance there because and. and uh, the, I remember this, uh, and it's not that long ago, a few months ago, where uh, Brian McLaren in an interview said something to the effect of every movement toward a real relationship with God has to go through atheism. You have to deny the God that wow. thought existed. And um, so I don't see atheism as, you know, uh, uh, way outside this conversation. I see religion as way outside this conversation. Um, you know, it's, when people ask me about secularism, and they bemoan it. I say, don't you understand that secularism is halfway to Jesus from religion? Right. And, and so, you know, I, I find great affinity with... Um, uh, and I found a lot of atheists who have read The Shack and Crossroads and, and will read Eve and find resonance, because these books are human books, right? first and foremost. They're not religious books. They're not agenda-based, let me get you out of your camp and into mine. Right. You know, I, you know. At the end of this, it, you're you have a sense of openness in terms of the conversation. Uh, you you can have fundamentalists in every kind of ideology and philosophy, as you know, uh, as well as every religion. And it's the fundamentalist mentality that is the one that is most difficult to to um, to break through to because it's become an identity. That's why they're fundamentalists, whether they're um, atheistic fundamentalists or religious fundamentalists. Um, it's they now have an identity as one, and that piece is very hard to break through to. But if there is an openness to the conversation at all, then if we're going to find that openness inside the coherence of a, of a conversation about our humanity. Right. Not about gender, not about ethnicity, not about um, philosophical idealism, um, but about our humanity. And um, and I, and I think that's I think that it it will absolutely resonate inside that conversation because they're going to be able to identify themselves. It's that. I love I love the the notion of a coherence and a conversation about our humanity. And I just went to you know I, I've used this line many times, but you know you I was raised with a. Um, you know, you can't talk about sex, religion, and politics, and 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 I've kind of added another one to that, and I've said, okay, and death as well. So those are, so those are sort of four things. Well, in our house, we're trying to raise our kids quite the opposite, so that we are talking about these things on a regular basis. And I think, I think that's a coherence that we're all looking for, Paul, is to be able to talk about those human things like our sexuality. Oh, hey, yeah, good idea. Let's leave our sexuality to the pornographers. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? Like, how ridiculous, how ridiculous is that, that we can't have a dinner conversation with uh, our close friends and have some fun at the same time, maybe? Yeah. And our, you know, I love, um, I think, Paul, I think it was W.C. Fields who said something about, there was a conversation about sex, and he's like, yeah, and besides, the positions are ridiculous. And I just, (laughs) is is that not awesome? Like, it's very funny, but to be able to laugh at ourselves, I think brings some healing. And I, and I love your idea of this coherence in, in, in talking about our own, our, frankly, talking about our brokenness, it seems to me. Yeah. And and I would add another one to that list too. And that would be money. And money. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. 
Yeah. yeah, you can't talk about money. Yeah. Do you know that to this day, I don't know what my father made uh, per year uh, for, for a living when he worked yeah. because it was just, it, you just don't talk about that. No, you don't. And, uh, so the, I, and, and, I, and, and what I want to know, Paul, is the damage. What is the damage that's been done as a result of, of, well, of that kind of relational, you know, sweeping uh, of, the, of, the, of the stuff of life under the carpet? Yeah, and we created the inside that separation. We created the you know the secular spiritual divide. Right, and right. we lost, and in and in doing so, we lost our humanity. Right, and um, and so that's part of what what really fuels the way that I write, and that is, I actually believe, contrary to the way that I grew up inside the religious community, I actually believe that God has a high view of humanity, hmm. and and. And it's expressed this way. So this is why imagination has a place. Now, you can, obviously, because of God's high view of humanity, we're endowed with unbelievable capacities in terms of imagination. So mm -hmm. we can utilize imagination for incredibly destructive sorts of things. And, but what happened is that we annihilated or separated our humanity as if it was we had a very low view, call it depravity or whatever you want to call it, but a very low view of humanity, and therefore emotions and our creativity and our imagination got, you know, you, and you mentioned this earlier, growing up in an environment where imagination was always suspect. Yes. And, uh, and, and so mysticism, or that whole side yeah. of, of real relational mystery uh, with regard to relationship, whether it's between me and another human being or me and God, um, that was also... Um, squelched and, and, and reduced to a very flat, two-dimensional kind of set of propositions. Do you, think, well, do, do you think that has to do with fear, Paul? Is it, is it really fear? It, it always has to do with fear yeah. and then control. Yeah, fear, you, fear and then control. Yeah, because fear exists in our life to the degree that we don't know we're loved, right? That's yeah. First John. Yeah. And, yeah. and therefore, uh, you know, the response to fear is one of two things. You either control or you trust. And, and they kind of take you in two totally different directions. If you control, then you've got to use everything to stay safe and, and to control your environment, whether it's uh, through ideology and ideas and philosophy and religion and tenets and whatever, yep. uh, structures, institutions. You know, you, you find a way to control so that you don't have to take the risk of trust. That's why pornography is so powerful, because it is about a relationship in which you don't have to trust. It's the imagination of a relationship in which you don't have to trust, but it is, it is starkly two-dimensional, has no depth or wonder or mystery to it, and it is totally controlled by the user. It is the objectification of a human being in order to have an imagination of a relationship so that the risk of a real one doesn't have to be engaged. Yeah, that's fascinating that you, you, you talk about risk and trust in, in relationship to that. I mean, the whole idea of... Um, um, Risk and reward is uh, 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 very present to me in Eve in the book as well. I mean, it really... It is. It's, yeah. it's definitely one of the golden threads. Hey, um, we got to wrap up soon, believe it or not, so we're going to have to do a part two. But, you know, one of the things I think that I found um, uh, profoundly true uh, while reading the book, and I think it's one of those classics where, gee, I've always known this, and yet... You know, someone you read someone else putting in a different kind of language, and it's kind of on a you know, it's one of those lovely aha moments, those shocks of recognition. Um, but do we all do you think that we all filter 
our experience of the world around us and of others uh, through a sense of shame and self-loathing. And that's a direct quote out of the book. And I say yes. Um, I think God has nothing to do with shame. Um, I think, uh, you know, shame and guilt are two very, very different things. And, and, and we um, interchange them, I think, wrongfully. Mm. Guilt is uh, that I have, I have done a violation. I actually am wrong. You know, I've, uh, I've broken uh, something that was not mine to break. Um, I've transgressed a law. I've, uh, I've violated uh, a human being in terms of, that's guilt. And where I can recognize, you know what, I'm wrong. Will you please forgive me? And, um, but shame is I am something wrong. At the core of my being, if you go down to the deepest place of who Paul Young is, you will find a piece of crap, right? Right. And, and, and if, you, if you begin with the view that I am something wrong, then everything on top of that is, is your house built on sand because it's all shifting and it's all changing. So I think a lot of how we relate to each other, not just in one-to-one relationships or to ourselves, which I think is really uh, a significant place uh, where shame occurs, um, but uh, even globally, even within um, ethnicity and uh, political geopolitics and all that, that we relate to each other based on shame. You know, I spent some time in Croatia and in Serbia where you have ethnic religious violence that has been there mm. for now decades, mm-hmm. and, and everybody is filled with shame. Um, you have a Hispanic culture that, if you put religion on top of it, where face-to-face is almost unknown. Everybody comes with head bowed down. And, right, and, right. And I, and I think the, the fact that we pray with our heads down and our eyes closed is indicative of of centuries of shame hmm. um, because uh, there is something about face to face that that is an absolute um, affront to shame it is to say i matter and uh, shame says you don't you know you're nothing you're worthless you're stupid right. you're you're not enough and um, and so yeah i i I think shame fuels um, culture, and it fuels imagination, and it fuels um, politics and structure, and 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 I think that the, that there is hope to change that. Well, I think um, there is. Not, yeah, I think there is too, and it makes you know, working in development and so on. I I just think of the. Well, I'm glad you brought up the the whole former Yugoslavian issue because I think the the, the forgiveness, reconciliation, relationships, all of that can be so. It seems to me connected to these things. What's going on in Cambodia, Sierra Leone? I mean, uh, Syria, the conflict around the world. You know, don't want to yeah. oversimplify this stuff because it's hugely cultural and religious and all these different things. Yeah. But it makes you wonder when you've got a world leader signing a document or making a decision or responding to some question by a a, a Porter, if they're responding out of a sense of shame, right? Yeah. How does yep. that now, how is that now going to affect policy at a high level that's going to affect a family at a very grassroots level? It's just, it's yeah. wildly interconnected. It's wildly interconnected. I have a friend who started an organization called Stop Demand 
Stutton.org. Stutton, and she yep. works with the UN, and she is an incredibly potent human being. And, um, and she has found such little support for her, for her positioning at the highest levels, and fundamentally it's because the men in power are afraid to take a stand because it'll indict their own behavior. Right, and, right. Um, she told me, you know, as far as a people group, the evangelical male community are the hardest to get on board in terms of an anti-sexual um, trafficking, anti-pornography stance because they are so embedded inside this secretly wow. that they are afraid to take a stand that will indict themselves. And, and that's all shame-based. Shame is what's hidden. What, is, what do you keep in hiding? What is secret? What is that which fuels you? And then you create institutions to protect yourself from exposure in one sense or another, and we've got a world full of those things. And then um, I wonder why, you know, I'd, I'd rather kill you than you find out the, the truth of how, how horrible I think of myself. Um, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, how bizarre is it's, it's wild. Paul, I'm going to read it. Can I read a quote from the book? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to do that to end. But before, so when are you going to write a book? Uh, so you've done a few uh, fictional things. Are you going to write anything? Do you think that that kind of unpacks this in a way that we're talking about right now? Is that on your uh, to-do list? It is. Um, you know, it's. I have a real tearing between the nonfiction stuff and yeah. the fiction stuff. To me, is so much more powerful and accessible. Yeah. Um, and so if I write those kinds of things, I want to do it in a way that's very accessible, where you don't shut down people just because it's, you know, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would love to do that. I'm, I'm sort of toying with it. I'm working on something called Words You'll Never Hear God Say, and nice. that's got some of that in there, too. So. Right. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, when's when's the book coming out? When's Eve going to be actually... Uh, I know September, you can... Yeah, September 15th. September 15th, nice. So you can pre-order right now. Yeah. And just so everyone out there knows, that is a day before my 50th birthday. I just want everyone yeah. to know that. We did We did that so on purpose. <laughs> That's right. And I'm registered at the Home Depot and the local comic book store, if you're interested. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you go to WM Paul Young, um, it'll have book tour information, but it'll also, you can pre-order. And, and nice. right now there are certain vendors that have really cut the price, so it's very, very... It's 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 a good time to to pre-order. It's kind so of that's wmpauljoung.com. dot right. and that's uh, that's your blog as well, right, Paul? Yep, it yep. is. All kinds Excellent. of stuff, links to Facebook and Twitter, and all all this stuff that my grandkids totally understand. Chapter, yeah. I think, uh, chapter eighteen. It's uh, appropriately called based on our last few minutes face to face quote. They were not soft branches that held her, but the strong and tender arms of Adonai. He sat under the ancient tree and sang to her an ancient song of stars and of beginnings, of joy and hope, and all things love where nothing was unkind. It was the sweet song of healing and rest. It called to deepest longings and welcomed her like home was always meant to. Close quote. It's just, it's a beautiful paragraph. And I think a perfect way to end the interview today. I, I can't believe you were available. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, we got We got to do a part. We we got to do a part two on Eve, Paul. Absolutely, I, I'm so up for that. And uh, just so everyone knows, uh, Paul, there is a possibility, just a slim possibility, he may be up here for a day or so on on a book tour. We'll keep everybody posted. But again, Paul Young, uh, check out the book. You can pre-order Eve. WMPaulYoung.com. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, David.